This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. Today's recommendation is A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century by Barbara Tuckman. We discussed this one last week in regard to the English mercenary Sir John Hawkwood. If you're interested in learning more about how these free companies of mercenaries developed during the Hundred Years' War and helped shape the future of places like Italy, Tuckman's book will be a great resource. She even delves into the infamous White Company that brought Hawkwood to prominence. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 7, Fra Angelico. When you visit Florence, one of the top tourist destinations is the Academia Museum. This is the home of the Florence Academy of Fine Arts, and more importantly for us, the home of Michelangelo's David. Often the lines into the Academia run down the street and around the block, sometimes with an hours-long wait. The Academy boasts a small to medium-sized gallery, but it's jam-packed with important works from the Renaissance. If you continue past the Academia and the art school, all the while dodging street vendors peddling their wares, you come to a little square and a church, the Church of San Marco. It's really more than just a church. It's an entire religious community, including a convent housing monks of the Dominican order. And just to clear up any confusion, orders like the Dominicans use the word convent whether the site houses male or female members. This church doesn't really stand out from any of the others you see in Rome or Florence, Though it is an interesting piece of architecture, but it's not nearly as large or as inspiring as, say, the Duomo or Santa Maria Novella. In some ways, San Marco seems to be almost tucked away between these other buildings, and you don't realize you're there until the streets open up into the square. Your only guides are the signs that point you to the Museum of San Marco. It's possible that the curious tourist who is unfamiliar with the history and treasures of this particular church might follow the signs once they step out of the academia, And it seems to be pointing you somewhere important, obviously. However, the crowds are often very modest compared to the main tourist destinations of places like the Duomo, the Academia, or the Uffizi. This church, and particularly its convent, were once home to one of the most important figures of the early Renaissance, Fra Giovanni Angelico, or Brother John the Angelic. Fra Angelico is another one of those interesting hybrid artists that blends Renaissance ideas with Gothic elements. If we were to follow a direct artistic line, he might be considered a direct descendant of the artist Giotto. Somewhere in the middle between Giotto and the more classical naturalism of Masaccio. 
except that Fra Angelico is a contemporary of these artists and not a predecessor. I wouldn't consider him a reactionary against the new classical ideas, but he was definitely a throwback to an earlier style, and yet he still incorporated ideas of perspective and modeling borrowed from Brunelleschi and Masaccio. Fra Angelico was a deeply spiritual artist, and this may have affected his style and be part of the reason why he retained some of the Gothic elements. If we could place him as a link between Giotto and Masaccio or Donatello, we'd have a nice, neat little package. But the development of art history, and history in general, seldom works this way. Instead, Fra Angelico represents a little bit of a step backwards, and yet at the same time, a step forwards in the Renaissance, sort of like we saw with the artist Paolo Uncello. He was unable to fully break with the Gothic style, and yet he pushed artistic development forward in many ways and would influence later artists of the High Renaissance. In fact, we can link him directly to Michelangelo, who studied under Ghirlandaio, whose teacher was actually a student of Fra Angelico. In piecing together the aspects of Giotto's life, we have only a few sources. Were it not for Vasari, we would not have anything at all on many of the artists we have looked at. However, once Fra Angelico joined the Dominicans, we have a few more corroborating documents. Not much, but we have a few. Many of the events of his early life are open for debate. In fact, we're not even sure of the year of his birth. Here's a fun game. Do an internet search for Fra Angelico's birth date and see what comes up. The general consensus seems to be around 1395 to 1400, but I've seen sources as early as 1387 and several that place it just after 1400. The Metropolitan Museum in New York places his birth between 1390 and 1395. We really know very little about his years before he took his vows as a monk, and even Vasari admits he's speculating about Fra Angelico's early years. We know that his given name was Guido, or Little Guy, because this was the name he had prior to taking his vows, but we don't even know his last name. Supposedly, he was from the same area as Chateau, just outside of Florence. And upon taking his vows, he took the name John, or Giovanni. It seems that he was already trained as an artist when he entered the monastery at Fiasole, sometime between 1418 and 1422. Now, for a little background, let's discuss the Dominicans. The Dominicans are an order of monks founded by St. Dominic, and the mission of this order is to preach the gospel and combat heresy. This was a response to the Cathar heresy of the Middle Ages. The Dominicans are actually known as the Order of Preachers, or Ordo Praedicatorum in Latin. This would be the same order that Thomas Aquinas would belong to, and they remain an important arm of the Catholic Church even today. The motto of the Dominicans, Laudare, Benicere, Praedicare, means to praise, to bless, and to preach. The monks themselves are known as friars. Remember Friar Tuck from Robin Hood. Upon being received into the Dominican order in Fiasole, Fra Angelico was sent to Cortona for further training. This is where he would take his irrevocable vows for the order, meaning they were permanent. Prior to Fra Angelico joining the order, the friars of Fiasole were forced to leave the Fiasole monastery because they refused to accept the election of Pope Alexander. Known as Alexander V, he would only reign for one year and would be declared anti-pope upon his death. The friars would be the guests of the monastery of Foligno until they were forced to leave after an outbreak of plague in 1414. 
and then they would settle into Cortona in 1418. Cortona would be the place where Fra Angelico would receive further training as a Dominican and where we see his first works as an artist. Now, this also lends credence to the fact that he was trained as an artist before entering the monastery. We do have a bill of sale for work in 1418, and this would be just prior to him becoming a friar. This also may help explain why he burst onto the scene in Cortona so shortly after joining the monastery. He seems to have worked primarily as a manuscript illuminator, and for those of you who aren't familiar, this is how books were transmitted prior to the printing press, and the primary sources of learning during the Middle Ages and the early Renaissance were the monasteries. This is where monks like Fra Angelico would spend hours and hours transcribing books of the Bible, particularly the Gospels, and illuminating them, meaning they would hand draw and hand paint pictures within each book. This would make them very expensive. And this is why when the printing press finally comes on the scene in the middle of the century, it's such a revolution. It's said that Fra Angelico would often pray while painting, and his prayers would be related to the subject matter that he's painting. Supposedly, Fra Angelico would never retouch his work because he felt to do so would be to tamper with what God desired, and he felt he was moved by the Holy Spirit while he was painting. Therefore, God was directing his hand, and if he retouched his work, he would be inserting himself between God and the completed work. I use several sources for this episode. One, of course, is Vasari, but another one is J.B. Supino, an Italian writer from the turn of the century, and I love the way he describes Fra Angelico. Quote, so active and original was the artist, and so grand in his simplicity, that he always remained just what he appeared from the beginning, the painter of ingenious piety and mystical ecstasy, and intense religious fervor. End quote. I think that really sums up Fra Angelico, a very devout individual who used his artwork as a form of preaching. In fact, he was totally focused on praising God and spreading the teachings of Christ in his work. Like the Gothic painters of the previous century, the objects themselves were less important than the message, and this may have led to the development of his own unique style. Very much like Giotto, he combined some aspects of naturalism, but he still focused on the spiritual aspects of his work. Fra Angelico represents the last in the line of the school of Giotto, but he was still a great innovator and broke a lot of new ground for future Renaissance artists to follow. Let's return back to the monastery of Fiesole. The Dominican monks would eventually be granted permission to return to the monastery in 1428, where Fra Angelico would then paint the refectory. We have a few examples of Fra Angelico's work during his time at Fiesole, though many have been restored beyond recognition. One piece that we have that has not been destroyed is the predella of the altarpiece for the church. It's still intact and well-preserved in the National Gallery of London. There is also a painting of the Coronation of the Virgin, which is in the Louvre. All of these pieces were executed in egg tempera and were painted on wood panels. Now, egg tempera is not unlike oil painting, except that you use an egg yolk for the binder for the pigment. The fat from the egg yolk allows the paint and the pigment to adhere to the surface. However, it requires very fine brush stroke, and the broad, loose brushwork you might see in fresco or even oil painting are almost impossible in this medium. When the friars moved back to Fiesole, this placed Fra Angelico in the center of the Florentine Renaissance. It also placed him in Florence around the same time that Masaccio died. And upon the death of Masaccio in 1428, Fra Angelico would become the most important and the most influential painter in Florence. Fra Angelico adopted linear perspective for his artwork, 
The same perspective we see Masaccio and Ghiberti use, as well as many other innovations. And he merged this with his own late Gothic Chateau-esque style that it was already developing prior to coming to Fiesole. Despite his retention of Gothic forms, Fra Angelica was actually on the cutting edge of the early Renaissance. And we tend to forget this because of the work of Masaccio and others who came along later. But during his day, he was the one using perspective, pushing the idea of linear perspective and really developing it. He would continue to experiment with perspective for the rest of his life, even though he seemed reluctant to adopt the full naturalism we see with artists like Masaccio and Donatello. In 1435, the Dominicans of Fiesole received permission to occupy the convent of San Marco near the center of Florence. Fra Angelico would move with them to this new space, and this would place him in the center of Florence and would bring him into contact with very important patrons like Cosimo de' Medici. In fact, Cosimo de' Medici would commission the architect Michelozzo to renovate the church and the convent of San Marco in 1438. As part of this renovation, he would commission Fra Angelico to paint the entire convent in fresco, including an altarpiece and all of the monastic cells. And this would take place between 1338 and 1343. And this is where we would see some of Fra Angelico's greatest works. In fact, San Marcos is the greatest collection of Fra Angelico paintings in all of Italy. When you first visit the monastery and the church, and you ascend the stairs of the chapter house, you slowly see a fresco that comes into view. Often this is the one crowded by tourists. It's one of the most famous. And this would be one of his versions of the Annunciation. There are two different versions of this scene. This one at the top of the stairs going into the chapter house, and there's another simpler version in one of the cells. The version of the Annunciation that's at the top of the stairs is probably one of Fra Angelico's most well-known works and probably the most published. This scene depicts the moment that Gabriel announces to Mary that she's carrying the Christ child. When you analyze this painting, you don't necessarily see the emotion that we've seen in other artists, but yet there's a beauty and a grace to how he's handled the paint and the fresco. What we do see that makes this a holy Renaissance painting is Fra Angelico's use of perspective to create depth. Mary and the angel are under a series of arches, and the series of columns demonstrate Fra Angelico's mastery of perspective. And he's created this very realistic and very natural architectural setting. Even the figures themselves are more simple than his earlier Gothic forms, and he's using more muted tones in this series. Previously, he would have used bright colors like those you would see in, a, in an illuminated manuscript. Despite his use of perspective, he departs from Masaccio in his placement of the figures and the modeling. The figures don't overlap, and in fact, they're actually separated from each other by a column, creating two different panels. And they don't really fit naturally within this architectural space. They seem a little cramped, and the figures themselves seem somewhat flat. The robes don't seem to drape over the figures naturally. It's almost as though they're just hanging on a wall. So these figures lack the naturalism that we saw with artists like Masaccio. The expressions of Mary and Gabriel, as we discussed earlier, are very simple and they're easy to read. And this goes back to Fra Angelico's gothic trainings and its sensibilities. The entire point of this painting is for it to be easy to read. If the emotions on the faces were too complex or too difficult to read, Fra Angelico would have failed in his mission which would be to create a simple image that's easy for everyone to read and understand. This is where we see that the religious narrative trumps any artistic innovation that might confuse the story. And you have to remember, what's the purpose of these paintings, particularly from a Dominican friar? 
They're to teach the gospel, and anything that might confuse the viewer has been excluded. Standing in front of the fresco of the Annunciation, as you look to your left or to your right, you see a number of monastic cells running the length of the building. Cosimo de' Medici himself would have his own cell at San Marco for those moments that he wanted to get away and spend time in quiet reflection and prayer. Each cell contains a fresco painted by Fra Angelico. In fact, there are 43 in all. As we look at his body of work in San Marcos, we do see more modeling than we'd previously seen in his other work. We see Fra Angelico's work evolve as he adopts more Renaissance ideas. I will include images of several of these on the website, so please take a look. We're not going to go over all of them, but they're definitely a very interesting series of paintings. One of his greatest paintings of this series, potentially, is the Transfiguration, which is located in cell 6. This shows the moment Jesus reveals to the apostles that he is the Son of God and the Messiah. It's believed that the purpose of these frescoes is to encourage personal devotion and reflect on the life of Christ. The monks would wake up every morning in these cells, and the first thing they would see are these paintings by Fra Angelico. They would also be the last thing they would see at night. So this image would be seared into their mind and help lead them into devotion and contemplation on the life of Christ. Now, if we get back to the painting of the Transfiguration, this one is a great example of the simple and direct approach that Fra Angelico developed over his years of working. He had abandoned the garish colors, which we've already talked about, of the illuminated manuscripts, and he's using more muted and more naturalistic colors. And this is an example of the influence of the Renaissance on Fra Angelico. The altarpiece for the church was another project sponsored by Cosimo de' Medici. The altarpiece of the church is another project that was sponsored by Cosimo de' Medici. We're going to focus on the panel of the Last Judgment. Now this, of course, depicts the scene from Revelation, and Jesus is enthroned in the middle. On Jesus' right side, we see the elect, who will receive the reward of paradise. And on his left side, we see the damned, who will receive an eternity of anguish and agony. If you notice the characters among the damned, there are quite a few cardinals, and it looks like one pope, who are all awaiting their torture. This, perhaps, is a warning to the clergy that they, too, will be judged for their deeds. This is not unlike what we'll see in Michelangelo's interpretation years later, when he'll place various people who are well-known, even several living opponents of his, within the ranks of the damned. In many ways, this might still seem like a medieval piece, but upon closer examination, this is the work that Fra Angelico is probably most influenced by the ideas of the Renaissance. We see linear perspective right in the center of the panel, and we also see more solidity of the figures in this piece. Even the saints who are in the clouds seem to be grounded into real space. I think Fra Angelico is carefully adopting more and more of these Renaissance ideas. He is an innovator, but he's slow to adopt these ideas of the Renaissance because he wants to make sure these new ideas will not interfere with his main purpose. If they help in telling the story, it's great. If not, he needs to discard them. So this may explain some of his reluctance over the years to fully embrace the Renaissance. Remember, these are also the goals of his order, the Dominicans, and this was something that Fra Angelico believed in full-heartedly. In 1445, Fra Angelico would move to Rome and work in the Vatican. He completed several pieces during this 10 years in Rome, but only a couple of these survive today. It was during this time in Rome that the Pope offered to make Fra Angelico the Archbishop of Florence. 
he actually turned down the position, and he recommended another Dominican so that he might remain a humble friar and a painter. In fact, he would never be promoted above the rank of friar despite all his years of service. Fra Angelico would die in a Dominican convent in Rome in 1455 and would be buried in the church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva on the orders of the Pope. His epitaph reads, When singing my praise, don't liken my talents to those of Apelles. Say rather that in the name of Christ I gave all I had to the poor. The deeds that count on earth are not the ones that count in heaven. I, Giovanni, am a flower of Florence. In 1982, Fra Angelico was beatified, and he was made a saint in 1984 by Pope John Paul II. I think we can see why of all the artists of the Renaissance, he's the one that was made the saint. He's a man who lived humbly and simply and never lost sight of his mission to share the story and the love of Christ. He is often lost amid the classical giants of the Renaissance. It is too easy for us to forget that Fra Angelico was a leader and a major innovator during the early Renaissance because he held on to some of the aspects of the Gothic style. However, he is the one who helped preserve and promote the ideas of Masaccio, even though he never fully adopted Masaccio's naturalistic style. He would also be instrumental in the development of the art of fresco. The unadorned frescoes of Fra Angelico would set the standard as artists moved away from gilding and expensive decoration, and the art itself would stand alone without any of these other trappings. This would later be a huge influence on Michelangelo when he began his designs for the Sistine Ceiling half a century later. Many of the artists of the next century would owe an artistic debt to Fra Angelico. I would like to remind everyone to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you've not already, This way, you will receive the latest episodes as they are published. We are also on Facebook, so be sure to like us there as well. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support the show, there are a couple ways you can do this. Please visit our sponsors through the sponsor links on therenaissancepodcast.com. Of course, you may also support the show by using Audible. You may click on the Audible link on the website or visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance and when you do you will receive a free audio download if you prefer you may also make a secure donation through the link on the website all donations are greatly appreciated and help to keep the podcast going just click on the donate button and make a secure donation through paypal join us next time as we explore the art of pietro della francesca i say next time because i will be taking next week off to work on an art show that's coming up in october But we will return again in two weeks, and we will explore the artist who would serve as a bridge between the ideas of Masaccio and the later Renaissance.